Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. At the beginning of April, in response to the horrific images emerging from the Ukrainian town of Bucha, President Joe Biden called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. He promised that these crimes will be prosecuted, but he did not say how he will ensure that happens. It's understandable. The process is labyrinthine, can take years from start to finish, and can be blown off course by both legal hurdles and political events. My guest today is here to hold our hand through that mace. Dr. Maria Varaki describes herself as an academic nomad, but even though the geography of her career is complicated, the focus of her work has remained very firm. Her teaching has taken her from Copenhagen to Jerusalem and Istanbul to Helsinki. She has done stints at the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, and Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. She currently teaches international law at the War Studies Department, King's College, London. Welcome to the bunker to fellow Greek, Dr. Maria Varaki. Good morning, and thank you very much for the kind invitation and the very kind introduction. It's our privilege, Maria. Maria, let's start with a big easy one, shall we? All the questions are going to be quite basic because we want this to be an explainer. And I say at the start that I understand there are details, intricacies, complexities, exceptions to everything you will tell us today, but we're not here to do that. We're here to just explore the basic concepts. So, What is a war crime? Is there a basic definition? Yes. Well, I will try to explain in a very simple but not simplistic way what is a war crime. Because everyone is, and I use the verb bombarded the last days in quotation about war crimes. War crime is a serious violation of international humanitarian law. International humanitarian law is the body of public international law, which is Mm -hmm. related to the conduct of hostilities. Because as we also say, and the way we teach international law, even war has rules. This is what the Red Cross says, and this is how what is the most important principle, that war nowadays is not unlimited and it's not without rules. So if we have a serious violation of international humanitarian law, then we can talk about a war crime under the Rome Statute, which is the founding document of the International Criminal Court. If you allow me, I can give you a very simple example. One of the fundamental principles of international humanitarian law or the laws of war is the principle of distinction. According to the principle of distinction, we have either civilians or combatants in a military, Mm. uh, in a Mm. conflict. According to this fundamental principle, civilians cannot be deliberately targeted. Only combatants can be targeted. Civilians have what we say, immunity from targeting. Unfortunately, what we experienced during the last weeks on the territory of Ukraine is the targeting of civilians. We have many deaths among civilians. Not only targeting, we have executions, we have other forms of of violation of international humanitarian law that I can explain a little bit better later. Yeah, the the Mariupol theatre was the example that popped in my head, but we'll get into that later. Maria, are are we dealing primarily with the Geneva Conventions here, or are there many other legal instruments that contain guidance? Yes. International humanitarian law is the body, as I say, 
of public international law, which is based on treaties and customary law. So yes, as you rightly said, we we deal mainly with the 1949 four Geneva Conventions related exactly, as we say, to the protection of those who do not actively participate in hostilities, whether they are civilians, as I say, wounded, sick, or prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. And also we have provisions related to the law of occupation, which is very relevant to what's taking place now on the ground. But also Mm -hmm. the four Geneva Conventions have been complemented by two additional protocols of 1977, together with other specialized international treaties related to particular weapons, such as chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons. Is Russia a signatory to the relevant conventions? Is Ukraine? And does it matter? Do they have to be? Yes, they are. Um, I think Russia uh, is not a signatory to additional Protocol 1, if I remember correctly. However, most of the provisions of the treaties have been uh, are considered to be of customary law nature. What do we mean about that is that irrespective of the fact whether a state is a party to a particular treaty, it is bound by customary law. So according to a study by the ICRC, the Red Cross, the majority of the provisions and mainly the fundamental provisions, as I said before, such as the principle of distinction, the principle of proportionality, precautionary Mm. principle, are considered to be of customary law nature, which means that they are binding upon all member states, all parties. I see. So, So essentially they've existed for so long and are so well understood they've become part of a sort of international natural law exactly a customary right. law they have been accepted you know by states that those provisions those principles and norms have a binding force upon them what is genocide and how is that distinct from the general principles of war crimes yeah According to the Rome Statute, we have four core crimes. One of them is genocide. Some scholars talk about the crime of crimes. Genocide is a very particular crime. And actually, I want to say something that the first international treaty related to human rights violations was the Genocide Prevention Treaty from 1948, which was adopted the same year that the Universal Declaration on Human Rights Mm, was adopted. mm, mm. So the, the crime of genocide is a very important, grave crime and also very difficult to be proved because the crime of genocide requires a particular intent, which we call it genocidal intent. So part of the of, of the activity is that you try to exterminate in part or in total a particular national, eth- ethnical, racial or religious group, but you need to have a genocidal intent that you want to do it. You carry a particular mental element that you want to exterminate this group. So mm. although I see and I hear many political leaders to invoke genocide, genocide carries particular semiotics, symbolics. It, yeah. it triggers um, a sensitive reaction. So I would say that the political and the social invocation of the crime of genocide is different from the legal crime, which is much narrower. Can I ask a, a, in brackets a, a slightly lawyerly question here? When you talk about genocidal intent, Mm -hmm. are we talking about objectively established genocidal intent? So finding a document that expresses the intent by the leadership for genocide, or are we talking about a sort of externally established, like any reasonable person would understand this 
as genocidal intent. So, so are we talking about a subjective or an objective test? Well, there are many factors that can infer genocidal intent. I have to say that when I was much younger and I was a research assistant to a leading professor in New York, uh, he asked me to research on genocidal intent, how we can infer genocidal intent. Mm -hmm. And the practice has showed us that it depends. For example, in Rwanda, it was quite crystal clear, to put it simply like that, the genocidal intent. So it was easier to prove there, you know, that they wanted yep, to yep. exterminate the cockroaches, right? Mm, mm. However, when it came to former Yugoslavia, it was more difficult to prove that there was genocidal intent. So it's not only to find a document, as you say, an objective one. It depends on many factors. It depends to some extent, you know, to people, to the number of casualties. Although, again, Srebrenica, we had 8,000 Muslim men and boys. Mm. Uh, it depends on other actors. It depends on patterns. So it's a combination of different factors that can prove genocidal intent. There is an argument on behalf of some scholars about Ukraine nowadays, right? So they say that all this uh, long-lasted campaign against the non-existence of Ukrainian nation indicated, somehow consolidated to some perpetrators an understanding that they want to exterminate the Ukrainian mm, nation. Mm, and mm. we have witnesses who have been victims of sexual violence where Russian soldiers told them that I want to make you incapable of having Ukrainian children. So there is a combination, but again, you know, you need to combine all these factors. You need concrete evidence. And that's why the Nazis, with the Nazis, the Holocaust was easy. They had documented everything. Nowadays, it becomes more difficult. But nowadays, on the other hand, we have more tools. We have technological tools that can assist us in finding evidence, you know, that you can put the pieces of the puzzle together in order to be able to prove genocidal intent. Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, mm -hmm. Oksana Makarova, has said that the, the Ukrainian government has already received more than 2,000 reports of crimes against civilians. Obviously, we can't explore all of them, but other patterns, do they fall into various distinct categories. So we have the example of Mariupol, which would yeah. seem to me to be an example of targeting mm -hmm. civilians. Mm -hmm. We have the information that has emerged from Bucha, which I guess would fall under the treatment of prisoners, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. or maybe not, maybe you will correct me. But what are the, the general categories of mm -hmm crimes that we're seeing in Ukraine? Yes, as I told you, currently, because we have an armed conflict taking place, an ongoing armed conflict, although the Russians are not allowed to call it war, you know that they, are go they have to call it a special military operation in Russia. We have different atrocities. These atrocities can be categorized, as I told you, whether it's war crimes or crimes against humanity into extreme cases as genocide. Mm -hmm. Now, war crimes, they need a nexus with an armed conflict, okay? And as I told you, we're talking about serious violations of international humanitarian law that could be from targeting, deliberately targeting civilians, destroying um, infrastructure uh, for the civilian objects, executions, torture, different forms of atrocities. Mm. 
Yeah. At the same time, you know, we have a different category of atrocity crimes. We call it crimes against humanity. These crimes are, are crimes that they are committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack against civilian population. Now, crimes against humanity can be committed both in wartime and peacetime, and that's a major difference with war crimes. I okay, see. War crimes I see. can be committed only during with a nexus to an armed conflict. All those crimes require a point of intent, a mental element. Now, what we have seen at the beginning of the conflict when I was interviewed, I was very careful, cautious, being a lawyer myself. So even nowadays, we still talk about alleged crimes, right, until they are fully substantiated. However, the more evidence we have from the ground, the more reports we have from the ground, and I refer to reports coming from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, the UN mm-hmm. Office of the High Commissioner. Mm-hmm. The recent report under the OSCE, which is the Office of for, uh, the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, they just published a report. There, they claim that there are serious questions and indications for alleged war crimes and crimes and violations of international human rights law that have been committed. So the Mariupol theater, for example, where we had children was written in Russian, right outside the Mariupol theater, or what's going on nowadays in Mariupol with the siege of the city, of the factory, of the steel plant factory, where there are not only combatants, but also many civilians have been trapped there. These are indications, you know, these acts and the reports, the information we have, there are serious indications, I would say prima facie evidence, you know, that some war crimes might have been committed, have been committed there. Okay, moving on to a slightly different thing. So what is the concept of aggressive warfare? Mm. And do thermobaric weapons, cluster munitions, things like that fit into it? Well, we have two issues here. Aggressive warfare, at the beginning, I told you that under international criminal law, we have four core crimes. One of them is crime of aggression, and it is under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. However, currently, Russia is not a state party to the Rome Statute. And for that reason, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court cannot investigate the crime of aggression. Russia was never a state party to the International Criminal Court. Right, right. Never. Neither Ukraine is a state party to the International Mm -hmm. Criminal Court, but they have actually accepted the jurisdiction of the court with a declaration since 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. What that means is that the prosecutor of the ICC can and is currently investigated war crimes and crimes against humanity that might have been committed on the territory of Ukraine by all parties. But he cannot investigate the crime of aggression. And the crime of aggression is very important because it's the supreme crime, as we say, because waging an aggressive war is the beginning of all the other atrocities, right? Right, right. That's why we had a parallel initiative by some leading scholars, leading scholars and Gordon Brown here in UK, that say we need to establish a special tribunal just for the crime of aggression for Russia in order to be able sometime in the future to prosecute political leaders who wage, uh, who are we kidding? We're talking about President Putin, basically, who wage uh-huh. an aggressive war. 
This was a very interesting initiative. It has been supported by many, many, many people. I think it's very difficult to be substantiated, and I don't want to go into further details about that, but it shows how important is the crime of aggression. And for me, actually, waging an aggressive war in 2022 is one of the key elements, you know, one of the key characteristics of why the Russian invasion is such a flagrant violation of international law. So in some ways, we're seeing a a move similar, I guess, to the Nuremberg um, move, which is that if we don't have a thing that can deal with what's going on, then we can create it through international diplomacy. It's true. Even President Zelensky spoke of a a similar tribunal, right? However, currently, we have the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court is a permanent international criminal tribunal that has jurisdiction and the prosecutor has opened an investigation. And I know that there are investigative teams on the ground in Ukraine collective evidence. Now, when it comes to the crime of aggression, the Russian invasion of Ukraine indicated, actually highlighted the weaknesses of the system, to put it simply like that. That international law does not operate in a vacuum. International law is part of international politics. And state sovereignty still matters. So when a state does not want to be bound by international treaty, can simply abstain. And this is what has happened with the most powerful states regarding their own statute. It's not only Russia, U.S., Turkey, India, Israel, China are not members to the Rome statute. Uh, however, as you said, you know, we see... What we see with Ukraine, I think it's an unprecedented effort, first of all, uh, to collect evidence, not to lose evidence yeah. uh, during while the armed conflict is still going on, which is unprecedented. And second, I would say that there is massive political will, at least on behalf of the West, to send a message that that type of activity is not acceptable in 2020. What's the difference between the International Criminal Courts, Mm -hmm. which we talked about, and the International Court of Justice? That's a very good question, as we say. The International Court of Justice is based also in The Hague. It's part of the UN system and deals with interstate disputes. So the International Court of Justice adjudicates disputes between states. The International Criminal Court is a court, again, based in The Hague, but deals with individuals. Right, Because the key feature of international criminal law is individual criminal accountability. Mm. In Nuremberg, Justice Jackson, the prosecutor of the United States, said that crimes, international crimes, are not committed by abstract entities. Crimes are committed by individuals, by human beings. And this is where is the main difference. But I have to say that in Ukraine, we have seen an activation of all relevant legal fora. So also the International Court of Justice played a role at the beginning and also the International Criminal Court. So we see a parallel activation of different fora, of different institutions. And that's why I say, for me, it's an unprecedented hyperactivity. You mentioned this briefly, Maria. Is the fact that the process has been very organized right from the start and evidence collected as the war is still ongoing unusual? It it seems to me that the issue of the crimes committed during a conflict is often an afterthought. 
And in this case, it seems to be a parallel process right from the start. Does that make prosecution easier or does it make it trickier because of the sheer volume of evidence that you get? It's definitely a daunting challenge for any prosecutor, to put it simply like that. Mm -hmm. But it's true. They started collecting evidence from the very first moment. The Ukrainians were extremely active. I'm not sure they had the know-how, but they have massive financial and technical support. So at this stage, France sent forensic investigators to collect DNA. Other countries, such as UK, the US, the European Union, Eurojust and Europol, set up a joint investigation team with the Ukrainians. The same applies with the ICC. So yes, from one side, it's very important that they don't lose evidence, you know, and we have all these new tools. It's not only the satellite and images, the drone footages. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. It's intelligence, but also there is the will to collect, to preserve and analyze this evidence. Because this war, like every war, is the victim of disinformation and misinformation. Yeah. Well, the only response is to find the truth. And finding the truth is via credible, credible evidence and credible investigation and effective investigation. So, mm. yes, it's true. Uh, sometimes I was wondering, um, sometimes I'm wondering, how are they going to coordinate all this effort, right? We need a depository because we have so much evidence being collected uh, currently as we speak. But I really hope, you know, that they, they will find a way to preserve this evidence and this evidence will be used in future proceedings. Mm. Finally, <laughs> I have a corker for you. Yes. So given the challenges at every stage of the process, from documentation to hearings, what do you think is the probability of ultimately holding Kremlin officials to account at the end of this? I will be very cautious again. I think it depends very much on the evidence they have collected, and we don't know. Oh. Because, as I told you, we have also intelligence evidence. So at this stage, I, I have no personal information what, is, what they have collected. I can tell you something. I would say we have to be realistic, not to expect an immediate response. I would expect arrest warrants quite soon. I don't think we could see arrest warrants, but arrest warrants depends. We could have um, on soldiers. It depends very much on what the prosecutor will prioritize on military commanders you know, have a responsibility yeah, yeah. to prevent those atrocities. And who knows if they have the evidence that they can establish a pattern that something has been condoned on a senior level. Also, you know, we can have also arrest warrants against senior political officers. Uh, I think it's a difficult scenario, but it's not an unlikely scenario. Okay? It's not mm -hmm. an unlikely scenario. It may not happen tomorrow or in a couple of months, but we may, usually international development surprise us. Imagine, think of Milosevic, okay? Milosevic yeah. stood trial before an international tribunal. Charles Taylor stood trial before an international tribunal. Of course, that took place when the circumstances changed, when there was a regime change, because we yeah. have to understand that the International Criminal Court does not have a police or an army, cannot go and arrest uh, individuals. Individuals have to be arrested, have to be surrendered. 
Okay, so as we speak now, it looks very, very unlikely to have developments in the near future. However, I think many officials, Russian officials, will have a big problem to travel abroad. Mm. They won't be able to travel abroad freely because whether it's in the National Criminal Court or there are other states that they use what we call universal jurisdictions, arrest warrants will be uh, issued. I'm pretty sure arrest warrants will be issued, and that will make their life quite difficult. Dr. Maria Varaki, uh, thank you so much for your time and for your patience with my schoolboy questions. Thank you. Thank you very much for the questions, and it was a real pleasure. Thank you all. Remember, there's a new Bunker Pod every day, the full panel on Tuesdays, your Start the Week Bulletin on Mondays, your Culture Supplement on Saturdays, and daily interviews every other day. So don't forget to subscribe. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. The legal intricacies of what constitutes a war crime may be complex, and the legal hurdles high, as they perhaps should be for these more heinous crimes. But I find I keep returning to the simple but profound observation of a Jewish writer in the Weimar era, Leon Feuchtwanger, who said, There is no more serious crime than unnecessary war. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreo. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.